this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an American journalist, a novelist, a university professor and a translator. In the latter role, she's best known as the translator of Nobel laureate Orhan Pamuk's work. She's also a former president of the human rights organisation English Pen. Among her own novels is The Life of the Party, set in Turkey, and The Other Rebecca, a contemporary take on Daphne du Maurier's classic 1913 novel, Rebecca. Her latest book, My Blue Peninsula, is set in Istanbul, the city of her childhood. Maureen Freely, welcome back to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much. It's great to have you back in the studio again. We spoke to you before about your, your last novel, Sailing Through Byzantium, which was actually very small. It was more of a, what would you call it? It was a memoir that was pretending to be a novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was about a broken heart of a, a little girl who was taking the Cold War very seriously while her parents and all their friends were popping champagne. Bad champagne. Bad champagne. (laughs) But, I mean, oddly, this book really goes on the same theme, My Blue Peninsula. And that's because it's all so intimately bound up with your own childhood. Tell me about growing up in Istanbul. Well, I've spent my very early childhood in New Jersey, mostly in Princeton, New Jersey. And then when my father finished his doctorate, we moved to Istanbul, where he had a job teaching at what was then an American college. So that was 1960. And we were only going to stay for three years. But my father in particular fell in love with the city and kept on putting off leaving. And now he's there forever. He's buried there with my, next to my mother. So it's the story of a, a love affair, if you like. But of course, it's being in love with a city that nobody can really understand at uh, least of all Americans arriving in the middle of the Cold War. So I think that's one reason why I always go back to it. You talk about this small child obsessed with the Cold War, which is she has been in several novels now. <laughs> she was obviously you. Tell me about how that political atmosphere affected you. Well, I was indoctrinated before I even got there because in the American primary school system in the 1950s, we used to have to have drills to prepare for the big one. And so... I was very, very much aware of how dangerous the world was and how it could only last maybe in a few more days. And so uh, getting to the Bosphorus, and our, we had a house overlooking the Bosphorus, you could almost lean across and touch those Soviet vessels going back and forth. Mm. And I was reading Time magazine and Newsweek. They're just appalling if you go back to them because they were, they were just such propaganda rags. But because I was a precocious reader, I took all of their metaphors seriously. So I actually thought they were marauders in the bowels of the ships and so on. And, of course, that was a big joke for my parents and their friends. Mm. So it was happening on two levels in a certain way. So in the book, Dora is the protagonist. And as a child, she listens to Radio Moscow. And she also sort of tries to teach herself Russian. It's extraordinary. Was that you? I certainly listened to Radio Moscow, but it was a friend of mine who, who took it further. I also listened to Radio Tirana where they would say things like, today, capitalist pig Nixon continued his invasion of North Vietnam. So 
Lots of perspectives. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the atmosphere in the book is very much as you described, drinking bad champagne and partying and very, very bohemian. Yes. And that is very much what happens here. So just to lay it out for people, it's about an old Istanbul family. But as you say, nobody can really understand the city. And the history of the people is so complex. And, and that was one of the reasons I found this book so fascinating, because modern Turkey is incredibly complicated. But You can see why when you look back over this grand sweep of history. Tell us a little more. Start with the city itself. Well, the city, when we got there, had been forgotten. And that was the great charm for my father in particular, because we were going around the ruins of the city that was sort of trying to become modern, but had you know houses propped up by Roman columns and things like that. So it was very charming if you didn't know the backstory. <laughs> and... Uh, The cover story for the Republic, and it was only 40 years old by then, was that the empire had fallen and, and out of the ashes of the empire, this proud new modern republic was born. And so uh, amongst our Turkish friends, there was just this line that history began in 1923 and nothing before that mattered. And we got into the habit of finding out very late in the day, 20 years after knowing somebody, that that actually they weren't completely Turkish or they had this hidden history. Sometimes even they didn't know about these histories. So it's endlessly fascinating, but ever more mystifying. Yes. So tell us some of that history. I mean, you can't possibly do it all. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's very, very useful to know, to understand yes. modern Turkey yes. and also how this very dysfunctional but ultimately loving family works. Yeah, and fun to be with family. Yeah. 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 One of the rules I had is I never invent a character that wouldn't be welcome at one of my parents' parties. So, <laughs> okay. so we have the Ottoman Empire that at its height, stretches across the Middle East and North Africa and a good portion of, of Europe. And it's multicultural. It allows for other religions to be practiced. It has no aristocracy in terms of bloodline. It is forever bringing in bright boys and beautiful girls from the other parts of the empire and, and beyond, often sold by their families. And if they convert to Islam, the men can go up to the rank of Grand Vizier. So it's a very kind of interesting, doesn't really join the industrial revolution, so it becomes more and more backward, but, but it is really, really diverse and rich. And traditionally, the old Ottoman families would have sway over the civil service and the army. And the business of empire was done by, by the, the minorities, so Jewish, Armenian, and Greek, most of all. And you could get... You can have a very good, rich life that way. So the West starts infiltrating in the middle of the 19th century, and they're not allowed to educate or, or convert any Muslims. So they go to work on the, on the Christians because they think their form of Christianity is primitive. And they actually are very successful in this, the Americans in particular, including the people that uh, started the school where my father taught and where, which I attended later. So by the time the empire falls at the end of the First World War, you have these very well-educated Christian minorities, and you have everybody else who's been very, very humiliated. The occupiers come in. The, the West, uh, sort of French, British, and Italians are occupying Istanbul for about four years after World War I, and they favor the non-Muslim minorities. 
And so afterwards, they're very much reviled and are slowly got rid of. The problem is in the old Ottoman families, the old Ottoman families were everything. They were a little bit Armenian. They were a little bit Greek. They were a little bit Persian. They were a little bit Georgian or, or Chechen or Greek. So, so at that point, the families have to start pretending that this never happened. And what happens after the Armenian genocide of 1915, which begins in Istanbul, but most of the slaughter happens in Anatolia, any land that is quote-unquote left behind by the Armenians and then later by the Greeks is handed out, appropriated in different ways. So I grew up with and went to school with the grandchildren of those people. And it was only really, really late in the day that I kind of worked out that a lot of that bourgeoisie was from stolen Greek and Armenian money, to put it mm. crudely. Mm. And so, as you say, people reinvented themselves. Yeah. So you have these families with, with all of these different roots living in looted property. And yeah. the particular family that, that you're talking about is, it's an old Istanbul family. They come from a patriotic ancestor and the wildly bohemian descendants live in, in this house that I could just imagine. You just describe it so beautifully. But nobody ever speaks about it, how they got their money, who they are. And this is Dora's quest. Yes, yes. And uh, it's partly her quest because she is of this family, but not in it, because uh, her mother was a bit of a wild card with elements of espionage in her repertoire, if you like. And unbeknownst to Dora, she is brought back after an early childhood in New York because her mother wants to get that property and money back. But she's being very espionagey about it. <laughs> if that's a word, it is now. <laughs> so the book, the book starts with Dora writing to her daughters to try and make them understand she's just been targeted by political assassins who want to get rid of her. And she's trying to explain to her daughters why she can't leave. Yes. And she yes. does this all in a series of notebooks. And what I love about it is is that you're not telling the story chronologically. You're, you're darting all over the place. T tell us more. One of the things I wanted to portray in this book is how it feels to be in a city with a, just such a deep and, and never not completely fascinating history. And nobody's telling it to you. And so you're almost caught in chapter eight of a mystery story that nobody will let you read on from. And so the more time goes on, the more clues she gets, which are never in the right order, the more obsessed she becomes. And at a certain point, she and her so-called cousins, who turn out not to be her, her, her cousins, but her nieces and nephews, uh, although they're all the same age, it becomes an emotional issue for them. They have been involved in left-wing politics in the, the 70s and 80s. They have been very badly scarred by it. And so they kind of go into a kill-the-father mode. So mm. when they start opening up the truth about the Armenian genocide, which happened in a big way in real life in the late 1990s and early 90s, it's not clear what their motives really are. I mean, they have political motives, but there are also those personal motives. Mm. And I think... That is one of the things that I came to understand better by writing about them. I was involved in, in that movement, if you like, as a, as a translator, but also as a, somebody who grew up with Greek and Armenian minorities mm. in Istanbul. And so basically it's just, well, until then, was never spoken of again. No, no. no. I mean, we, because I was, despite my father being a devout Catholic atheist, I was identified as Christian 
And so the, the, the Greeks and the Armenians used to speak a little bit. They would just, they'd only talk about what they knew, which is what, you know, what, what they, kes, 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 which means cut, cut, cut. What had happened, the slaughter that had happened in their own village or their own family. So I knew that things had happened. And I also knew that if we mentioned it, we would be deported right away. So there was just a lot of fear, which, although I didn't understand the reasons for it, I felt very, very strongly. Um, and is that fear is still there. It's not quite as bad as it was before because of this movement that was headed by a very charismatic Turkish-Armenian journalist called Hrant uh, Think. He opened up the subject because he believed that it had scarred everybody in the whole country and that that everybody had to grieve together and then, then, then we could move on. For this, he was assassinated. And his family carries on now uh, work with a foundation in his name. So that foundation and a number of others have kept the conversation going. Where it stops, of course, is reparation. Where it stops is <laughs> what happened to all that money, what happened to all that property. Mm-hmm. It's much discussed in Armenian communities outside Turkey, but it really nobody wants to go there at all. I mean, modern Turkey, as we said at the start, is is, is very complex. And, and <clears throat> there seems, I mean, Erdogan is authoritarian. Uh, um, <laughs> just a little. <laughs> and I wonder how your work is received there, because we know so many, I mean, Elif Shafak won't go back yeah. to Turkey. Yeah. There are many people who've fallen foul of the government. How are you received? It depends on the, the weather, really. <laughs> I've had my bad moments, particularly when I was translating Orhan Pamuk, and I was identified in the press as a super agent, which I don't need to translate, yeah? <laughs> after which I was approached by a lot of lesser writers who were very authoritarian nationalists, because they thought maybe I could be their super agent. Mm-hmm. But they care mostly about what Turks say about Turks, so I'm a little bit protected in that way. I didn't go back to Turkey very much uh, during the English pen years because we campaigned for so many of the really important writers who are still in prison. And I wanted to be able to campaign for them without worrying about putting anybody at risk. Mm. But now I can go back. Interestingly, with this novel, it's been when there was the, you know, the first interview in The Observer, it just went viral. It went viral in Turkey. And everybody saw it. And after that, there was a silence. And every once in a while, people say, oh, we have a story like that in our family. That's as far as it goes. So I think it will be slow stories in my family. But nobody, as I said, nobody really wants to go there because it exists in the entire bourgeoisie that property and wealth was, was placed into other hands. And it was not always done in an illegal way. So it's just very much... The way that Americans will feel about the beginning of our nation over there. You know, it's always stolen. It's always stolen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the land. Yeah. You Country. talk about your English pen years. Of course, you were the chair of English pen. But you came to translation through your work with Amnesty. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I was working at Amnesty International in the mid-1970s as a very bad secretary in all senses of the word. <laughs> it was a really fun place to be a bad secretary because they used us all for what we could give. And so they found that I might have some talents other than typing the same letter 17 times over for the death penalty department. So I was doing translations that were coming in around that time. It was between the two coups. And so there were a lot of testimonials coming out about what had happened in prison. And then... Um, 
also on the executive committee at that time, executive, I think it was called IEC, yeah, there was a, a Turkish constitutional lawyer whose novelist wife had just died very early of breast cancer, and he gave me two of her books and asked me to translate them. And I did translate one of them, and it really did change my life because that was the first time I found out what happened to my contemporaries in political prison and mm. how they'd been tortured and how they just, yes, and how the U.S. was, was behind it. Tell me more. The U.S. regarded Turkey as the staunch NATO ally, not at all concerned about it being authoritarian in the usual way. And when the student left got very, very powerful and noisy in the late 60s, there was a lot of pressure from the U.S. to take care of it. And and that happened again. In, yeah, it was 1971. It happened again in 19, 1980. One of the things that I found out while translating Sevki Soysal's account of her time in political prison is that the people looking after them, or watching over them, I should say, came to be American-trained after a while. They weren't in the beginning. And then, um, yeah, so there was, a, there was a lot. So I think... One of the things that I want to know more about, care most about, is where is the the shadowy hand of the U.S. in all this? Mm. Um, um, I was brought up to believe that we were just there to educate. And actually, at Robert College, where I was, we weren't part of this military-industrial complex, if you like, and very much against it. But inevitably, we're part of something. The book has all of this in it in, in various ways. I mean, yeah. there's a whole strand of, of espionage. Did you see espionage? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are secrets, there are spies, the history of, of Turkey, but also this family and the family dynamics and all of the characters. I mean, Dora is an amazing girl. How did you make her? She made herself. I mean, I did have a few older friends who had very, very interesting fathers. I mean, one of them had. One of the fathers had a German last name and he had 14 passports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was married to a Finn. You know, another, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of very unusual people in Istanbul at the time who kind of washed up there and then, and, then, uh, and then were in hiding. There was also several whose mothers were part-time spies or, you know, Girl Fridays or something like that. You know, just like disappearing and coming back and... Whiskey voice figure out. <laughs> so at a certain point, Dora in Sailing Through Byzantium, the previous novel, she just she just walked in and took over. And I, I just had to follow suit. So with this book, I wanted to know more about Dora, first of all. And so I was just trying to figure out how did she get to that apartment house in the middle of Bohemian Istanbul? And that, that wonderful artist who lives next door, she calls her great aunt. How can that woman possibly be her, her great aunt? Where are the pieces of furniture in that, in that room where she has all the big parties? Where do they come from? Who built the house? And it's through that kind of strange investigation of my own inventions, some of which are from previous novels, that I, I gradually worked out who they were. And we find out. And I mean, I love the way you do it also with family trees. There's a sort of one little bit of a family tree and then it grows and yeah, grows. And yeah, then suddenly yeah. we can see the whole family. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Without going cross-eyed. Yeah. <laughs> because it's tremendously difficult to keep track of it. And I'm yeah. so glad to find the family tree. <laughs> okay. This is, this is ideal. Uh, the title, that's from Emily Dickinson. Yes, yes. It might be easier to fail with land and sight then gain my blue peninsula and perish of delight. It spoke to me. I, I went back to it and it spoke to me because it's, it's a consolation for idealists, particularly political idealists, who 
are never going to get to the place where, that they dream of. But, but maybe that's better than perishing with light, because if you don't perish with light, you might learn something. It's also the, you know, the patriarch, the other patriarch that we don't really meet very well. There's the, the Ottoman patriarch, the Pasha. But there's also the man, the, the Armenian patriarch who actually built that house in, in 1901 or, or some such. Italian architect. He's up and, up and coming. He wants the best for his children. And from his windows, he can see the old city with the old palaces and the old mosques. And, and he wants to be respected. He wants to be respected by the rulers. Mm. And, uh, and he, he feels he's on his way. It really, I mean, the whole book just, I was absolutely immersed in it. I, I found it, I mean, I, I don't So was I. <laughs> Quite, sure. Well, tell me about that, though, because it's been 10 years. Well, it was my, I began writing it just after my husband died, and that was kind of 11 years ago, I guess. And I really threw myself into making sure my children didn't get stuck, and then I didn't either. And so in payment of sins in another life, perhaps, I took on management jobs at the university so I could just do something different and immerse myself. So I was faculty chair for a year and I was nightmarishly head of an embattled English department for, for, for three years. And so I began writing this book as a sort of escape from all that. And I would just have my weekends. So Saturday I would start writing it and my head would be just full of all of the, the, the battles of that department, which were even more Byzantine than the ones <laughs> in the book, I'm telling you. And, uh, but on Sunday it would have calmed down and then I just wrote on Sunday and I didn't push myself. So that's one of the reasons why it took such a long time. And being in that world, how does it affect your day to day? Because it's very different from how we live here now. Well, I obviously miss it terribly, and I think, uh, and I don't really belong, you know, I'll, I mean, even though uh, I went there when I was eight, I'll always be a foreigner. And so the way that I bind myself to it is by being there in my imagination, which is probably a bit too powerful. <laughs> so, so translation is definitely one thing that takes me home. Through translation, I, I've learned an awful lot about, I've been able to, to go into minds and families where I would never have got beyond the front room, if you like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's uh, so it's and I'm, I'm still trying to understand my childhood, really. Yeah. Talking of translation, of course, you can't get out of an interview without people <laughs> asking you about Orhan Pamuk. And to my mind, since you stopped translating him, I haven't enjoyed his work quite so much. But <laughs> that's just my opinion. Tell, tell me about working with with Pamuk, who, of course, did win a, a Nobel Prize. Yeah, that was, that was the funnest part of working with him was going to Stockholm. Yeah, I briefly went out with his brother when I was a teenager. After that, we were friends because we were both in in university in America together. He was at Yale, I was at Harvard. I paid no attention to Orhan whatsoever until I happened onto one of his books in the book room at the Independent on Sunday when I was reviewing there. And that was the White Castle and it really spoke to me. It was a very, very good metaphor for what he and all of us went through, which was an education that was Eastern and Western at the same time and it didn't really fit together. Yeah. Anyway, I, as a, a literary journalist, I helped him, advised him, and so on. And then he was having a, what I later understood was a, something that happened on a regular basis. He was having a dispute with his then-translator. <laughs> and his then-translator was not going to do the snow. And so he wrote to me and said, could you do it? It will only take you two months. And I thought, 
that would be a nice way to stay at home more with the children. And I was wrong. <laughs> it was very interesting. I was pulled into the controversy that he got pulled into when he made a very mild comment about a million Armenians having been killed in, in these lands. Didn't even use the word genocide. And, uh, and so I got pulled into it as well because I was also a journalist, so I was trying to explain everything. And then he, just in order to live, and I mean it literally, he had to stay way, way out of all that. But I stayed because it was, it mattered more to me because it it spoke to me of the very multicultural communities in which I had grown up. And he had not. He'd been in a, a Turkish, secular, bourgeois neighborhood and family, but I was in a very different kind of more bohemian mm. <laughs> mixed world. And I just felt I couldn't be true to my my friends and my community unless I stayed in. And so I'm still in it in my way. Yeah, I've translated a number of books also about Islamicized Armenians. They're done by mostly feminist oral historians in Turkey. So that's my little contribution. Mm. And we're seeing many more novels in translation now. Do you agree? I mean, I'm I, so glad about it. Yeah. I'm so glad. And I... Uh, I know that about 20 years ago, a number of us at the Translators Association were um, talking about what, what we could do to, to bring more translated work into English. I had a particular extra interest, and I felt that market forces here in the Anglophone sphere, Anglosphere, were getting much too narrow, and that I thought it would be good for us to be disrupted by more fiction and poetry coming in from, from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so we just started doing things, and partly because of some very special people like Daniel Hahn and Sarah Dozan. We've been much more successful than we ever dreamed of, and and we're still we're still thinking of good ideas. Well, this book was an extremely good idea, uh, <laughs> and it would be a very good idea for everybody to read it, particularly if you really want to understand Turkey, because I think to get a handle on modern Turkey, you really need to know about the past, and this is such an entertaining, beautiful way of learning it. So, Maureen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Maureen Freely, My Blue Peninsula is out now. It's published by Linen Press. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to producer Tamsin Howard and to Mariella Bevan. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.